The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. 162 regular season games, six months of travel, flights, hotels, and baseball. Join us now for a behind-the-scenes look at a season on the road with the Oakland A's. Vince Catronio takes us on a journey around Major League Baseball. Starting now. Welcome back to another edition of A Season on the Road. Vince Catronio with you, and I visit with you from when I was here, the ballpark in Arlington, which became AmeriQuest Field, which became Rangers Ballpark, and is now Globe Life Park. It's all the same place. They just keep on changing the name. And with my best friend in baseball, my partner for six years here with the Rangers, in his 41st season with the Texas Rangers as their voice, and that is Eric Nadell, a 2014 Ford C. Frick Award winner, and instrumental in helping Bill King uh, achieve that award as well a couple years later. So, Eric, thanks for, for, for being a part of this. And just I, I think back to when I first met you when I was working with the Astros, and there were some exhibition games with Nolan, and I saw you at a Midland banquet years ago. Little did I know maybe you knew more than I did that we would be partners but it sure was a it was a lot of fun I really appreciated those those uh, six years that we had together yeah you guys were playing in the Astrodome then I think mm-hmm. and uh, we were playing in Arlington mm-hmm. Stadium but uh, yeah we had a great time uh, sorry we couldn't pull off the uh, ultimate win but uh, at least we had a couple of playoff runs you have you have worked in every stadium they have here at first there was the old Arlington Stadium which is like a minor league ballpark on steroids and now here and behind this stadium they're building a new ballpark. How did all that happen? As, as the A's keep on finding to get one stadium, you guys have gotten two stadiums. You know, I think it all comes down, Vince, to the nature of the city of Arlington, which is a city whose economy is, is based largely on tourism. And they can't afford to lose the Texas Rangers as their number one moneymaker. And they need to make sure that their product is state of the art, you know, in every way. And I think really that's what it came down to. When this ballpark was built, the technology wasn't available yet to put a roof on it and air conditioning at a reasonable cost. The only one at that time was Skydome. And if you'll remember, the roof cost about twice as much as the rest of the stadium. Well, the taxpayers here paid for the stadium. They weren't going to pay all that extra money. That's why we didn't have a roof to begin with. Within about three or four years, the technology was developed to make it affordable. And then you had Miller Park and you had Minute Made in Houston and, and all the rest of them. But we were just a little too early. And uh, as uh, Bill King knew better than anybody, we really need a roof mm-hmm. on this place. On more than one occasion since I've joined the Athletics, people would always ask me did I know Bill what was my relationship with Bill and I always spoke about I appreciated that Bill was down on the field before a game he would talk with Art Howe or with other members of other teams like our, like you yourself and myself and he was a guy that that wanted to gather information what do you remember about looking through the glass aside from the wardrobe changes from time to time with Bill that made Bill so special well what made him so special for me was his insatiable curiosity and uh, the fact that he did get really interesting information in talking to people because of how bright he was and the sort of questions that he asked. Um, But he also really made the game come to life, I think, in a way that most guys don't, uh, whether it was colorful phraseology or his sheer enthusiasm. 
Um, but I remember looking across the glass here, seeing that suffering expression on his face when the wind was blowing all the stuff around because he had this gigantic big scorebook and, and all this stuff was written down. And uh, like we do over there, you have to put rocks and paperweights on top of everything. Uh, Bill wasn't necessarily prepared for this place other than wearing the shorts and the, uh, and the Hawaiian shirt, which definitely was required. We were on the other side of the glass on one of his greatest calls, not on your wildest alcoholic nightmares, could you imagine, with Mike Lamb winning that crazy game, uh, 17-16, scoring Luis Alisay. I just, I just think back to when I worked here, and it's changed over the years, but when I worked here, and you certainly can speak to this, that the jet stream was very prevalent toward right center. Anything in the air just seemed create would create havoc, and more often than not, go out and go to the stands. What do you remember about the length of those games and what those games are like day in and day out? It was just a nightmare for people to pitch in here. Uh, it was even worse during the day games. It would seem the wind would be greater, and of course it would be hotter. I remember Brian Bannister one time pitching for the Royals and getting blown around the mound, and everything that he threw got hit in the air and blown into our bullpen. And they asked him after the game, and he said it was like pitching on the moon. <laughs> and it was it was like that. I mean, I don't know how many of A-Rod's 160 home runs that he hit in three years for the Rangers went into that bullpen and right center field, but it was a pretty high percentage. And when Mark Teixeira first came out on the field tonight, the first thing he said to me was, how's the wind blowing tonight? <laughs> but it doesn't blow that much anymore, whether it's climate change, uh, probably that more than anything or, or whatever. Uh, it's very uh, unusual now to have that kind of a wind. We used to have 20 miles an hour every single night. It's just a matter of how hard it was gusting. Now it never gets to 20. A windy night here now is about 15 miles an hour, and it just doesn't happen that often. So a Jewish kid who was born in Brooklyn, raised on Marty Glickman, who was one of the great uh, announcers uh, in, in New York, the one that kind of helped make Marv Albert who he is, did some hockey and suddenly becomes a baseball announcer. Not only a baseball announcer part-time, but a baseball announcer now for decades. And you, you have reached the pinnacle of your profession by being inducted into baseball's hall with the Ford C. Frick Award. How did all this get started for you? In, in a really bizarre way, you know, I, I followed baseball from the time I was about six years old in Brooklyn, and I listened to, you know, hundreds of games. Uh, but never got a chance to broadcast baseball until I was here broadcasting minor league hockey. And the Rangers were looking for a young announcer, which meant cheap, and somebody who they wouldn't have to pay moving expenses for, which meant me, and somebody who'd be willing to work in the offseason selling advertising, which I was doing in my minor league hockey job. And with all those things combined together, they allowed me to audition. It was actually a four-game series in 1978 between the Rangers and the A's. Uh, the A's weren't that great uh, that year, as I recall. Um, but I did a four-game series into a cassette recorder, and based on that, they decided if they gave me a whole off-season to prepare, then maybe by the time the following season started, I wouldn't embarrass them or myself. And we only did 30 games on TV then. So I worked just the 30 games that were on TV where they needed an extra announcer because John Miller was the radio play-by-play -play guy. He would swing over to TV when a game was on television, so they needed an, another announcer, and I was the guy. You kind of touched on John Miller, your former Sunday night telecaster, who was your first broadcast partner. He tells the great spring training story, maybe the first game you guys did together. We all experienced it, even to this day, where you broadcast the game, and it's the fifth or the sixth inning, and number 79 comes in, and 81, and 84, and 97 comes in, and John's looking, he has no idea who these people are, and suddenly you've got this, you've got a... 
You've, you've got this legal pad of information on number 81 and number 94 and number 97. You took it pretty seriously. I had worn out the Kansas City uh, PR department that week trying to make sure I knew who everybody was because I, I didn't have much else. You know, I'd, I'd never broadcast a baseball game before. I wanted to do whatever I could to provide at least some information. I went over. There was a game in Kansas City's uh, Terry Park. I went over there real early that morning to make sure I got a chance to talk to Whitey Herzog, who was the manager, and he spent a lot of time with me that morning, which was great, other than the fact that he didn't know who any of those players were anyway. But uh, he, he taught me a lot, both about his team and some questions I just had about baseball in general that I had, having only been a fan in the past. I only did one game that spring that was that game, so... I really had a chance to just blow it out. It was like I was preparing for for a final or for uh, a bar exam. This is a season on the road. I'm Vince Catronio visiting with Eric Nadell, the longtime voice of the Rangers. And Eric, something else that that has always impressed me about the the way you go about your work, you self-taught yourself how to speak Spanish. And uh, if you would recall the story around Ruben Sierra, how that planted a seed. My wife, Veronica, as most people know, is Hispanic. Her family's from Mexico, and she at times has difficulty communicating with you in her native language because you speak it so properly. How, how did all that come about? Well, Ruben Sierra really was the motivation. He came to the big leagues in 1986 and was immediately the Rangers' best player, and he didn't speak any English. So in order to talk to him in the era before there were translators on every team, I'd have to find Jose Guzman, who was our bilingual player, or maybe the uh, trainer we had Uh, Ray Ramirez, who was uh, bilingual, or the Spanish announcer, who was bilingual. If I couldn't find any of those guys, I was out of luck. I couldn't talk to Ruben Sierra, so I decided I better learn Spanish to start talking to this guy. Well, it took me four years to actually start. And then in 1990, there was a work stoppage in spring training, and I said, I'm going to use that time to start taking Spanish lessons. And I actually took lessons to begin with, private lessons, and then I got a set of Berlitz tapes that I would listen to in my car and on flights, and uh, within two years, I was traveling in the off-season to Latin America to get myself into total immersion experiences. And every day I'd go down and make sure I spoke Spanish to somebody, find some player who was willing to put up with my slow-motion Spanish, uh, or if not, just go up into the Spanish radio booth and, and start talking to Luis Mayoral and, and get my daily dose of it. I wonder what you thought about the A's organization from afar, because you're working in this, this minor league ballpark, and the, the Ranger teams, your initial teams, weren't very good. And you saw the history of the athletics, and, and they were a, you know, a, a strong franchise with great history, good players, great players at times. And they were going to the postseason, and you're wondering, when is my turn going to come? What did you think about the A's back then? It was always amazing how the A's were able to achieve. Remember when I started, uh, Charlie Finley still owned the team. The bul- half the bulbs were out on the scoreboard at the Coliseum. And then when I started doing it on a regular basis – Uh, my second year, Billy Martin was managing the A's. And that was incredibly exciting. You know, Billy had been the manager here, uh, so there was a connection between Ranger fans and Billy. And he had all of these guys uh, throwing all these complete games, and he had guys stealing home who could barely even run. And it was tremendously exciting. And so, uh, you know, from afar, I kind of became an A's fan. You know, I loved those teams back in the 70s, too, with their mustaches and their white shoes and, and how well they played. So uh, I've always really admired what they've been able to do. And obviously a two-team market where they're on the uh, less populous side of the market. When I came here, the Rangers had finally got to the postseason two years prior, 1996, 
against the Yankees, won the first game behind John Burke at the complete game, and then lose the next three. And then I come in 98, and it seemed like to me, I remember watching the athletics and, and thinking these guys are really cool. They're really loose. You know, the Chambis and the Chavezes and the Tejadas and those guys, they were really easy to talk to, and they were good. And it seemed like the Rangers at that time felt like they were good. I, I really enjoyed the way the two teams went against each other. What do you remember about those battles back in those days? Uh, just how high-scoring most of those games were and how games truly were never over, regardless of what the score was early in the game. Uh, Johnny Oates was the Ranger manager in those days, and uh, he would constantly you know, remind people of that. And, of course, the ballpark was such an offensive haven back then. It was so hard for teams to pitch that we would have these ridiculously long games. And, uh, it, you know, it really wasn't just the A's then because the, the Angels and the Mariners – uh, had big rivalries with the Rangers then, too. It was really everybody in the division with just a four-team division at the time. And I remember Tim Salmon killing the Rangers. Uh, Johnny would call him Salmon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and he would kill the Rangers. Seattle was the club the Rangers had to overcome in 1996 to win their first division title. And, of course, they were packing Ken Griffey Jr. and A-Rod and Jay Buhner and uh, Mike Blowers and... Uh, Edgar Martinez and a whole bunch of Ranger killers. All of those teams had unbelievably potent offenses. And you think back because the A's then go to the postseason in 98 and 99. It's the Yankees again. And I remember 98, the A's scored. They got swept in the, in the division series, three games. They scored one run. And they come to the next year, and then I turn to go. There's no now. The A's may lose this series, but Rangers, they're going to score Rangers. more than, or the Rangers are going to. The Rangers are going to. They may lose this series to the Yankees, but they're going to score more than one <laughs> run of this series. And they didn't. They no. scored only one run. And then 2000 is when the A's clinched against uh, the Rangers, and we were out at the Coliseum when Tim Hudson uh, got that done. The the game before they won like a million to nothing, and then Hudson, right. and then they and they clinch it. Uh, it to me, it really cemented how much fun it was to play inside this division. What did you think? It really was. And, you know, the one thing that wasn't fun was watching our hitters try and hit against Hudson and Zito and Mulder. That was, that was something I'll never forget. That was the you know, most potent three, I think, that there's ever been uh, in this division uh, during the time that I've been here. Uh, but those series against the Yankees, it just seemed that all the Ranger batters tightened up. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, they just didn't play the way that they did during the regular season with the possible exception of, of Pudge. Um, Juan Gonzalez had a big series in 96, didn't really do much in 98 or 99. Pudge seemed to be the only guy who was comfortable in that environment. For me, and it, I think it plays out for a lot of broadcast teams around the country, I think we invented the term diversionary tactics because <laughs> – from 2000, and my, last, my, my last four years, or 2000, 2003, even with some of the superstar names that were on the Ranger team, there were some really bad years. And they were losing games, you know, 11 to 8 or, you know, 9 to 2, and losing games and behind early. And we had to find things to talk about to stay entertained. What do you remember about the way we kind of looked at each other and say, what are we going to come up with next? Yeah, I mostly remember that it used to happen real early in the games. <laughs> We'd be doing it by the third and fourth inning sometimes and knowing how long the night was going to be. We weren't playing very many two-hour and 45-minute games. Yeah, those were three really lean years. And then amazingly, the following year in 2004, uh, you're gone and Buck Showalter's here and the Rangers make the Cinderella run uh, and – Probably one of the most famous games in Ranger history was a game where the Rangers actually beat the A's here on a David DeLucci walk-off 
triple that kept the Rangers in contention with just a few days left to go in the season. They, of course, didn't ultimately win. Uh, but that's one of the Ranger A's games that stands out most for me. When I worked with you for those six years, the one thing I always knew that no matter how much I prepared for that particular day, you were going to be at least that prepared and, and usually more. You were always very precise about the rules. We we had conversation with umpires, and I remember when I first came to the A's and I told Ken, Ken goes, where'd you go? I said, I went downstairs to talk to the umpires, and he looked at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> I said, well, that's what we did in Texas. He goes, well, Bill never wanted to talk with umpires. He thought they maybe were from Mars, but he just didn't like that relationship. But I always felt it was important in those circumstances, if there was something that you needed some clarification on, why not ask the person that made that decision? You taught me so much about about doing those kinds of things, and, I, and I've been fortunate to be able to carry that forward in the time that I've spent uh, in Oakland. But I, I've just appreciated so much the things that, that you helped me do uh, t- to make it a, a better broadcast. I, I thought it was important that because of the guys that you work with, John Miller, the late Mark Holtz, and others, I mean, people that, that were ingrained in your soul, that I had a chance to follow some of that. And even Brad Sham, who's you know is an icon here, you know, all the years doing the Cowboys, and I'm the one that followed Brad. But to to make it like a broadcast team, I thought I was so thankful that you that you made it welcoming for me. Yeah, and I, and I was really lucky that you know Mark Holtz was the key to that for me, to uh, it being a two man broadcast. You know, Mark was the star. He was still you know the best baseball play by play guy that I've ever worked with, and and maybe the best that I've heard. Um, other than Vin Scully, who's in some other planet, on some other planet. But um, asking the right questions and getting the information from the people who made the decisions or did what you're asking about is something I really learned probably mostly from my sister, who was a journalist. And her journalistic background, I think, taught me that. And there was no reason to not extend that to baseball broadcasting, you know, even though you're just a play-by-play announcer you know your job is to explain to fans what's happening and in a lot of cases explain to them what happened last night when you're not sure of what happened last night and whether it means going to a player and saying uh, hey uh, Ian Kinsler what happened on that pop-up last night that fell between you and Josh Hamilton and having him roll your eyes roll his eyes at you and you know be mad at you for five seconds or going down to the umpire's room and say, you know, how'd you see that play last night? Or, or what is the rule on that? How do you guys interpret the rule? It just seems to be part of the job. You finally got to the World Series in 2010 and 2011. Now, the first one, 2010, you get there, of all things, by Neftali Feliz striking out Alex Rodriguez of the Yankees. And it takes you to the World Series. You finally reach the promised land. Now, for me, I'm watching the Rangers, a team that I worked for, but let me go after 2003. My son, Dominic, was still a Rangers fan at that time, and they're playing the Giants, like, I want to say our hated rival across the bay, but, you know, they're the Giants, we're the A's, we don't necessarily get along. And so I surprised my son by taking Dominic to the games here at the, at the ballpark in Arlington for the World Series, the only World Series games I've ever seen, and I saw them as a fan, but it was, it was so such a great father-son moment to see him enjoy that and, and have his childhood kind of come full circle. But for you as a broadcaster, with all the years that you had here and all the bad baseball and the things that you endured and all the different characters that have played for the Rangers, what was that moment like? It was surreal. You know, I had decided kind of ahead of time that I would probably shut up for a few seconds and let the crowd tell the story. What I didn't really foresee was that I would really become overcome with emotion that the the way the place exploded and they had it very nicely choreographed with uh, you know balloons and fireworks and and 
things that just took your breath away that I honestly couldn't have spoken probably for 30 or 40 seconds. Uh, and there really wasn't anything that had to be described right then. There have been previous times where I've thought, well, I'm just going to lay out and not say anything. And then there was something happening that really needed to be described for the people you know, listening back home who, who couldn't see it. But in this case, you know, I was overcome and I, I just shut up for a long time. And then 2011, you get back, but then it's, a, it's even more heartbreaking the way that your team lost to the Cardinals. I would imagine it's something you don't like to necessarily talk about, but it's, it's something that you had to you had to work through as a, as a professional broadcaster. You know, and I think all Ranger fans are somehow bound together, uh, you know, by that disaster in Game 6 in 2011 where twice the Rangers were within a strike of, of winning the World Series. Uh, there are constant reminders. You know, fortunately, Nelson Cruz DHs now. He doesn't play right field very much. But for a few years after that, we'd see him 19 times a year playing right field for Seattle and playing in this very ballpark. And it, it was really tough. It's tough going to St. Louis, where they still have the golf sign on the right field wall where the ball fell that, that would have given the World Series to the Rangers had it been caught. It's almost like painting a chalk outline of Nelson Cruz on the warning track as a reminder. Um, it's tough. I don't know that I've gotten over it. I don't think Ranger fans have gotten over it. Maybe when the day comes when the Rangers will win the World Series, you know, we will get over it. Uh, I hope I'm still around to find out. When you're broadcasting games, and for me as as the number two broadcaster, you you know you have your selection of moments, but you don't necessarily know where they're going to come. And the following year, Hamilton drops the ball, and that is one of the most iconic moments in A's history. It was a moment that I was on the mic, and I was as everybody was with Cespedes hitting a routine fly ball to center. That the inning is over and you've got the lead, and you know this great run for the A's while it's been energizing, very exciting. And they're in the playoffs, but they're not going to win the West. Turns out, hey, they're going to win the West and be in first place the only day of the year. Uh, you were sitting, in, you know, you were sitting down the hall. I mean, I'd hate to bring it up, but I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> I believe the Rangers had to lose every game of that series for that to happen, too. They went into Oakland needing to win one game and won no games. And the Hamilton play, I think the I think the A's had already battled back, gotten within a run, if I remember right, uh, when that when that ball dropped. But, uh, yeah, that's a moment we're not going to forget. And just the way that Ranger fans are, you know, are mad or sad at the thought of Nelson Cruz, they never would have gotten to the World Series in 2011 if Nelson hadn't single-handedly wrecked the Tiger pitching staff in the ALCS. Similarly, the Rangers wouldn't have gotten to the World Series in either 2010 or 2011 had it not been for the heroics of Josh Hamilton. And then finally, you've written a book. Limerick kind of went through last year, which was a long season, but you try to have some fun with it. And certainly you seem to still have fun doing what you're doing. What, what, what keeps you coming to the ballpark? Yeah, well, it's funny because the, the Limerick book is the classic example of what you termed earlier diversionary tactics. <laughs> the Rangers were basically out of contention a month into the season last year, and uh, we're always looking for ways to have fun. But we decided to start writing a Limerick every day in the eighth inning. Several of them are about the Oakland A's and Chris Davis <laughs> because of everything that he's done here. Um, but we, we, I got a great illustrator um, to do the drawings, and uh, we sell the book on Amazon. Uh, and we're still, you know, we're still looking for ways to have fun. We did a thing this year in spring training, which hopefully we don't have to bring back during the regular season, where every day we would come up with something that we've heard in everyday life, which would make a great rock band name. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, 
hopefully we don't have to go to if the Rangers can stay in contention this year. But uh, either way, it's always fun. You know, the whole idea that they're paying us to come to watch Major League Baseball games uh, still um, it still beats working. Mm-hmm. Well, my daughter, who calls you Uncle Eric, just walked down the aisle last November. So it, it does happen fast. But our friendship, I am so thankful for, and, I, and I'm and I'm hopeful that you finally get a chance to to enjoy the new stadium behind here, and, and let's see if there's a good battle between the A's and the Rangers. I appreciate you visiting with us on a season on the road. Thanks. It's fun. Looking forward to coming to Oakland in a couple of weeks. That is Eric Nadell, longtime voice of the Texas Rangers. That is another edition of A Season on the Road here on A's Cast. Stay tuned throughout the year as we bring you different personalities from around baseball with our season on the road. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 